Um, now we can read from Judges 6, 1 through 6, and Judges 6, 11 through 16. Um, it's in page 205 if you have one of the Bibles from the church. The people from Israel did not, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel because of Midian, the people of Israel, made themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves of the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Aklamites and the people of the east come, would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no substance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the tabernacle of Ophrah, which belonged to Joseph the Abbey's right, while the son of Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where all and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us to the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to them, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manash, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, uh, open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts today. Amen? So one of my favorite theologians is a wonderful Englishman, very old now, named J.I. Packer. And some of you may have read his work over the years, perhaps uh, his magnum opus, Knowing God, is, been, uh, is on the shelves of many. When Packer was a very young boy, about the age of seven, he was being bullied in school, chased out of the school. He ran out the door and into the street where he was struck by a truck. And in a typical English understatement, he says, the truck got the better of the exchange. He spent the next several years recovering from his injuries. He was weak, and he despised his weakness. He despised his injuries. Then in that time, he met Christ. He met the Lord, and he began to marvel at the way in which God meets people in their weakness. And a couple of years ago, now as a very old man, getting ready to go home to be with the Lord, he wrote a little book called Weakness is the Way. I want to give you a little quote from it. 
Packer writes, in our society, strength is applauded and weakness is considered to be a defect. It means you've missed the best in life. But God does not allow us to keep the idea that we are strong. Oh, we may have that idea, but the Lord will disabuse us of it one way or the other, and it will be good for us and glorifying to him when he does so. There's probably no one sitting in the room this morning who wants to admit how weak we are. Our entire upbringing, our entire culture is designed to reinforce in us an idea that we must be strong. Strong men, strong women. We must be intellectually strong. We must be morally strong. We must be vocationally strong, even spiritually strong, psychologically strong. But the truth is we're deeply conscious of the fact that while we want to give out the image of being strong, we are in fact, all of us, possessed with certain weaknesses. And sometimes those weaknesses are completely paralyzing and overwhelming. Sometimes our weaknesses, the interior contradictions that we feel within us become so overwhelming that we don't even feel like we can face life anymore. This last week and the last couple of weeks, we've been reminded through the suicides of people like Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, very well-known people, that there are moments in life when people reach absolute breaking points. Yes, some of those are related to mental illness, and that always has to be given special attention. But people take their lives sometimes without any reference to mental illness. It's because, whether because of fiscal circumstances or relational breakdown, whatever's going on, life simply can't be handled anymore. We are weak. And we don't want to admit it. And so we hide. But that hiding always comes out in some other way. You know, while other leading causes of disease in the United States are on decline, like cancer and heart disease, the suicide rate in the United States since 1999 has been on the rise. Jessie Hellman, writing in The Hill, I want to quote from her article, she says, an analysis released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Thursday showed that suicide rates have increased in 49 states since 1999. And if you think those are just in sort of big cities or powerful places. She notes that rural states like Montana and Idaho and Wyoming and the Dakotas saw increases of between 38 to 58 percent. That's massive. You know, all of us must face up to the reality at a certain place that we are weak and we need to begin to grasp something that Packer did very early. That the Bible, counterintuitive to everything that we think and the way in which we've been raised, instructs us to glory in our weakness. Not to hide it, 
In fact, to boast in it. Because in fact, it is in these places of weakness where God meets us. Our culture values strength so much. Be strong. Take charge. You're supposed to be in control. Carpe diem. Climb every mountain. Ford every stream. Follow every rainbow till you find your dream. Joel Osteen couldn't put it better. But of course, this is given to us even in childhood. Let me give you some other lyrics that you might, some of you recognize. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Any takers? Yeah, yeah, that was Elsa. In Frozen. <laughs> to which all I can say is, let it go. <laughs> See, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we are weak in Christ, but we live by the power of God. 2 Corinthians 13. So what's this got to do with this guy Gideon? Everything. Israel, it says in this text, in Judges chapter 6, had been brought to a very low place. The Midianites came in, destroyed their crops. Israel was reduced to living in caves, strongholds up in the mountains. They were economically oppressed, politically oppressed. Everything about their life had been reduced to ashes. Gideon, it says, is from the smallest family in the smallest tribe, it was actually a half-tribe, the half-tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. So he's in the littlest family. He's a little guy from the littlest family in the smallest tribe. And to rescue at least a little bit of food from those marauding Midianites, he's sitting in a wine press beating out the wheat. Beating out the wheat in the wine press. And it says Israel at this point cried to the Lord. And God sent an angel, and he sent an angel to this guy Gideon. And when he sees Gideon, he says, how you doing, O mighty, valiant warrior? To which Gideon was like, uh, you got the wrong address. Uh, that guy, I don't, there might be a mighty warrior around here somewhere, but he must be living down the block. Because I'm hiding out here in this wine press, beating out the wheat. I have no idea who you're talking about. No, no, no. The angel said, God is with you. Oh, is that right? He said. Now listen to this tremendous man of faith. This is your great, this is, this is the guy you want as your leader. Oh, really? God's with us, huh? So, so is that right? Where are all the miracles we used to read about, huh? You got an answer for that? Here's what I love about Gideon. He is right out there with all of his skepticism, right out there with all of his doubts, right out there with all of his weakness. I'm from the smallest. What do you mean? He says, go in this your strength. Go in this your strength. And deliver Israel. Go in this your what? Your strength? What was his strength? His strength, friends, is that he didn't have any. My strength? See, sometimes you've heard your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. I get it, but listen to this. Biblically, your weakness is your strength. Your weakness. And the ability to say, I'm weak to boast in your weaknesses, that's exactly at the place where God really will meet us. We have to deal with that reality. Modern psychology knows this about us. You know, Freud, 
Freud was very aware that our interior spaces are filled with what he called unsociable chaos, competing forces down inside of us, some of which we don't like to talk about. We don't like to admit to those impulses that are inside of us, but because they would disturb our social standing. So we kind of create a structure on the outside that allows us to navigate through the society in which we live, but we never want to admit that those things are in us, but they leak out. They come out. And if we suppress them, Freud said, the only thing that really happens is guilt, which we then carry around with us, and shame. But he had no answer for the guilt and shame. Is there an answer for the guilt and shame that we feel when we deal with these impulses? We go for power. We think, if I could just get control. But power is seductive. Power is corrupting. And so we think we can handle the power, but when we get it, we all end up walking around going, my precious. And we find that we really can't handle it. It destroys us. Israel was brought very low, and then they cried to the Lord. You see, this is the way revival happens. Revival, revivification, God coming and meeting with his people, happens when we are brought low. We want strength and power. We want things to be perfect. But God comes to Gideon and he says, I'm finding you in your weakness and I'm calling it strength. Go in this, your strength. Gideon, if you read the rest of the story, said, okay, I'll go. So he assembled an army of thousands. But God then came to Gideon and he said, your army's too big. Listen to this. He said, if you go with that army and win, the people of Israel will say, we did this by our own might. Now, there's a whole series of steps that go through this story. Eventually, he ends up with an army of 300 men. Now, this is not the 300 of Thermopylae who lay down their lives in courage, the Greeks versus the Persians. That's not what happens. This is Israel's 300 who were not there for bravery and not there for strength. They were there with Gideon in the weakness of the moment because they're up against an army of 135,000 Midianites. That's 450. The odds are 450 to 1. Who are you betting on? They were there in weakness. And then he got his army together and he said, okay, here's the strategy, guys. This is what we're going to do. This is what God wants us to do. We're going we're to go up against the Midianites. And you can see the guys, you know, they're kind of like, okay, we're, we're getting ready to go here. We're going to go into this battle. And Gideon says, um, uh, you won't need your swords and you won't need your shields. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a trumpet in one hand. Take a trumpet, and then I want you to take a, a, a burning torch, which is surrounded by an earthenware jar, a jar of clay. I want you to take a clay jar with a torch, uh, you know, you know uh, and, and, a, and a trumpet, and we're going to go. Can you imagine that military assembly, that strategy meeting? How would you like to have been one of those guys? Okay, we're already down 100, we're already down 450 to 1, and here's how we're going to win. We're going to win by, by uh, carrying around musical instruments and flaming torches under clay jars. Yeah, this makes, this makes perfect sense. But it says in chapter 7, so Gideon 
and the men with him, this is Judges 7, 19 through 21, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they, they blew the trumpets. And then listen to this, they smashed the jars that were in their hands and then they blew the trumpets and broke the jars, the rest of the men. And then they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and the Midianite army ran and they cried out while they were fleeing. They just stood there. Now, you know, when those guys got home that day after this tremendous victory, none of them said, should have seen what I did today. This isn't what happened. They just stood there with a trumpet and a torch and a broken jar. Why a torch and a broken jar? You know, it's actually at the place where we are deeply broken. It's in the place of deep brokenness that the light of God's redeeming power and love begins to shine into the world. Paul writes, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, but they have to come to places of weakness and brokenness. What's interesting about this passage is that later, a prophet named Isaiah would pick up on it. Let me give you some of those words from Isaiah. You'll know them. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The government will be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will establish that. Do you recognize those words? Of course you do. You hear them just about every Christmas season. Unto us a child is born. It's Isaiah looking ahead and saying, here's how the Messiah comes. And everybody knows those words, but they don't know the words just in front of it. Just in front of those words are these words. The coming of the Messiah will be like the battle of Midian. Like this battle. Something broken, something broken and shattered, something of human weakness so that light comes flooding into the world and dark powers are driven back. It'll be something that God does, not something that people do. It's not going to be your strength. It's not going to be your cool. It's not going to be your intellectualism. It's not going to be your physical endurance. It's not going to be your spiritual ingenuity and your creativity. It's not something that people are going to do. It's going to be something that God does. And so God comes into the world, born of a teenage girl on the margins of an oppressed culture in a little village which was forgotten by people. And he comes vulnerable and hungry and poor. And then ultimately, this broken vessel called Jesus is shattered on the cross. And that shattered visage of Jesus hanging there on the cross is a trumpet blast from heaven that says, Sins are forgiven. And death is defeated, and the oppressor is driven back. That's why the early church carried the message of Jesus into the world, and they knew it made no sense to the world. Paul called it foolishness. He said Christ was crucified in weakness. The ancient world, no different from ours, was looking for, looking for a powerful deliverer. Israel was looking for 
a military kind of king who would come and drive back the Romans and give everything back to them that they lost. And God sends this weak, broken, crucified person. Imagine yourself one of the apostles going out into the world, going out into the Roman world, which despised weakness, hated meekness, despised the Jews and used crucifixion as a slave's death. You went into that world and said, we have news for you, good news for you. Your sins can be forgiven. Death has been defeated, but you got to put your trust in a crucified Jew. And what did the whole Roman world say? you got to be crazy except for a few, because Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, Paul understood that Christ crucified in weakness, releasing the power of God, was exactly the way that all of the ancient Christians were called to live. And so he saw it worked out in his own life. Over in 2 Corinthians 7, he writes these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, rather, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How many of you would like the power of Christ to rest on your life? I would. Well, then what do you have to do? What does Paul say? You have to boast in what? Weakness. You see, boast, boast is a military term. It's what, it's what commanders did. It's, it's uh, Henry V at Agincourt in that great Shakespearean speech, once more into the breach. It's gathering the troops together. We've got this. You can do this. It's the pregame speech by the coach who says, come on, guys, you've trained for this. You've gotten ready for this. Let's go get them. And everybody who's on the army and everyone who's on the team goes, yeah, we got this, let's go. I think that's what a lot of worship leaders want us to do. But the Bible says Israel was brought very what? Low. And then they cried to the Lord and God met them. Where does revival come from? Boasting. Boasting in what? Weakness. Want to hear a good Christian boast? I can't do this. That's the kind of thing we're trained to to say all week long, isn't it? I can't do this. These temptations are, are too great for me. I need help. That note of weakness has been running through the worship this morning. I hope you've paid attention to it. Those of you who are here on time, both of you, will have noticed that in the, in the opening, <laughs> you'd have noticed right in the beginning, right at the beginning, we're singing of God's power meeting our weakness. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. 
Or I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every other week, I need thee. <laughs> no, no, no. I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. Hour. Every hour, I need thee. Paul says, I boast in my weakness. It's very interesting. He says, a messenger from Satan was sent to him, but he says it was a gift. A messenger of Satan was sent to him, but he says it was given to him. This thorn was a gift. Sometimes people say to me, you know what I'm, what's going on in my life right now? I've got this disease. I've got this depression. I've got this stuff. I've got these relational difficulties. Got, it's like a thorn. I'm asking God to take it away, and he won't take it away. Is it from God? Is it from the devil? And the answer is yes. It's a gift, this messenger of Satan. Let that mess with your mind for a while. Why would God give you a gift called a messenger from Satan? For Paul, it was to keep him from getting proud. Because humility means that we're brought low. That's where Israel was. They were brought low, down to the ground. You know where revival begins? Revival begins on our faces, saying we don't have what it takes. Nietzsche hated that. The philosopher Nietzsche hated the idea. He hated Christianity because he knew about our theology of weakness. Nietzsche knew our Christianity better than most of us know our Christianity. And Nietzsche hated the idea of weakness. He hated the weak Savior. He hated the message of a weak crucified one. He hated the idea of weakly forgiving people and needing forgiveness. He hated the weakness of turning the other cheek. He hated it. He counseled what the world needs is the uberman, the superman. And one person took hold of his writings and decided to create the super race. We know what that led to. But there are people here still thinking they can find a super church. The world needs a super church. No, the world needs a, a church that's learned to boast in its weakness, and be on their faces. We can't do it. God, we need you. Some of you who are single here, you're looking for a super spouse. Well, God help you if you find them. <laughs> that ain't going to last. Some of you parents want super kids. You want to you wanna be the Incredibles. Well, I'm here to tell you, as Christians, I'm just speaking as a pastor now, only my kids are perfect. <laughs> no, no, no. The wool on my little lambs is as dark as anybody's. And I'm here to confess their sins to you today. <laughs> no, I'm here to tell you my failures as a father and to boast in my... We I'm amazed any of my kids are still breathing. <laughs> that there's any faith in them at all because they've had to put up with me. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, the things that are not, 
to bring to nothing the things that are. There's no one in this room this morning that's too weak for God to use you. No one. There might be a couple too strong for God to use you. But here's what I know. God meets us in our weakness. You know, there might be a couple of people here this morning sitting here thinking about suicide. 